Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Now, if you notice in chapter 10, verse 1, it says there, and he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So he left there. Now, the there that we're referring to is the area of the Galilee, the region of the Galilee. And specifically, you can look back to chapter 9, verse 33. You see that Jesus was in sort of his adopted hometown, which was the area of Capernaum. And that's where he was ministering to them. He answered, he addressed the issue of greatness with them. They had been arguing, debating amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest. And so Jesus gets into that house there in Capernaum, likely Peter's home, but it could have been anybody's home. Uh, And he goes in there and he says, what were you discussing? And he has that discussion there about uh, greatness. Well, shortly thereafter, uh, they leave that region, the region of Galilee, uh, and they begin to make their way, as this verse here says, down to Judea. Now, Jesus primarily lived, uh, he lived in Nazareth, which was one of the towns of Galilee when he was younger. He grew up there, and he primarily ministered in the town of Galilee uh, as well. There's about 200 small little towns and villages. Capernaum was one of the bigger ones. But there's about 200 small little towns and villages scattered around the Galilee region. And the vast majority, overwhelming, probably 90, 95% of Jesus' ministry was up in that region. And from time to time, as a good Jew, he would go down to Judea. He would go down to Jerusalem uh, where he would celebrate the feast and those things. And so here he's leaving Galilee to go to Jerusalem, Judea. And this will be the last time that he's in Galilee, other than when he was raised from the dead. Because now he's going down to Judea and he's going down to Jerusalem because he's going to give his life as a ransom for many, as we'll say a little bit later on. And so I want to remind you, I want to throw up a a little map here for you in case uh, you've forgotten. I know you can't read it necessarily, but you'll notice up there in that little peach color, that's uh, the area of Galilee. That purple color is the area of Samaria. And then that lighter blue color is the area of Judea. They're the three regions of Uh, Israel uh, in that particular time period here. And many of the good Jews didn't like to go to Samaria, so they tried to bypass that as much as possible. And so it's primarily Galilee, which was more populated, actually, if you take away Jerusalem and all of the people that live there, and Judea, which was primarily desert, even though it's so much bigger. So Jesus is going to be leaving the, the peach area, is going to be going down to that lighter blue area because Jerusalem is located down there in Judea. And that, this is the time, we are like two months away maybe, this is the time that Jesus is going to be betrayed, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified, and then he will rise again three days later. And so as he's making his way there, uh, it says to us in verse 1 that the crowds gather to him again. So they had heard about Jesus. Even though Jesus wasn't down in Judea very often, they had heard about him. People knew about him. It's the reason why the religious leaders from Judea, from Jerusalem, made their way up to Galilee because the people down in Jerusalem and the other areas were talking about this guy. There's a rabbi up there in Galilee, and he's doing things, and he's saying things, and he's challenging the status quo, and all those kinds of things. And so Jesus comes to the region, and word begins to filter around. I think I just saw that guy Jesus everybody was talking about. And then they go out, and next thing you know, there's masses of people that had gathered. And notice what Jesus does. It says, as was his custom, he began to teach them. That's what Jesus primarily did. 
he began to teach them. I thought he did a lot of healing. He did from time to time. But his primary goal was to teach the people, particularly now as we are in the final days of his life, as he's been doing with his disciples. In these last few months or so, ever since about uh, 10 months left of his life, in these last 10 months, he's been primarily avoiding the crowds and focusing on his disciples so that he could teach them. But when the crowds came, he ministered. And so that's what he is doing here. He's teaching the crowds. Now, don't you know it? Others came out as well. Look at verse 2. It says, now the Pharisees came up, yay. And in order to test him, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It's, it's somewhat sad that the Pharisees come up at this point. And the reason why I say it's sad is because they're, they're not coming up to find out information. They're not coming up to seriously inquire of the Lord. As you can see in that passage, it says they came to test him. They're coming to start trouble with him. And that's just annoying, quite frankly. And yet that's what they're coming to do. They're coming to start trouble. They're trying to put Jesus in sort of a pickle of a situation where no matter what Jesus says, half the crowd's going to be mad at him. And Jesus, almost with the wisdom of Solomon, he, he sees through it and he deals with it. Why don't we read through it? It's going to be two to nine. It says, now Pharisees came up, and in order to test Jesus, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a, a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, well, because of your hardness of hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore, notice the quote, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, again, as you can see in verse 2, they're approaching him in order to test him. That's their objective. This wasn't a sincere, look, I really need to know. We, we've been wrestling with this, talking with this. We figured if anyone might know, you might know. There's nothing sincere about this. What you don't see, which is interesting, is nowhere do you see sort of this mark of respect. So we've, we've studied a lot now of this Gospel of Mark. And as you go back, when other people came to Jesus, they'll often come up and they'll say, Rabbi, can I ask you a question? Teacher, can I ask you this? Master, can I ask you this? You don't see that anywhere here. I almost picture the situation as Jesus is teaching, and this group of scholars, religious leaders, Pharisees, they sort of meander their way up to the front, and then as he's teaching, they say, hey, what's your view on divorce? No respect whatsoever, and again, no desire here to really know. No, you know, look, excuse us for interrupting, but we need to know. None of this sort of stuff, just a, hey, what's your view on this particular issue? because they want to test him. And as I said when I began today, the issue of divorce became such a hot theological topic of the day that sides began to form in society. And there were primarily two main views regarding the appropriateness of divorce for a God-fearing Jew. And so on one side of the spectrum was the, the teaching of one of the most well-known rabbis of the day, Rabbi Hillel. Many of you have heard the name Hillel on college campuses. A lot of the groups that are there for the Jewish students are called the Hillel Group or Hillel Fellowship or something like that. It goes all the way back 2,000 years ago to this particular rabbi. And he was one of the more popular of the day. He took a more lenient view 
of divorce in his day. And as you can imagine, it became the more popular view in his particular day. Now, on the other side of the spectrum was a lesser-known rabbi today, but a well-known rabbi back then, and that was a rabbi named Rabbi Shammai. And he held to a strict view of divorce when it was appropriate, uh, when it was permissible for a God-fearing Jew. His view was not so popular among the people. Now, as we look at the parallel passage of this event here, Matthew gives us a little bit of insight into this theological discussion that's happening out there between Hillel and Shammai, because Matthew says this, it says, now the Pharisees came up to him, they tested him, and they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Notice the additional phrase that Matthew caught, and he includes for us, is for any cause. Is it lawful for us to divorce our wife, our wife for any cause, as some would say, like Hillel? One commentator I read, he pointed out that the issue of divorce was maybe the most theologically controversial question of the day among the Jewish people. And so by bringing this question to Jesus in this very public setting, where notice it says the crowd, the masses had gathered, what the Pharisees are attempting to do is they're attempting to get Jesus to either speak against Moses and what Moses wrote on the issue, or against the increasingly public opinion of the day. They're trying to get Jesus to take a stand on this, so half of the crowd's going to say, you're a heretic, you don't agree with Moses, or uh, this guy, he's one of them. He's an old school dude. One way or another, though, what they think they're going to do is ensnare Jesus. They're going to trip him up, they're going to get him, they're so smart. They've been sitting in some room figuring this out, we're going to get him. And Jesus is like, are you for real? They think they're going to get him. Now, this whole issue, the whole discussion, it hinges on the way you interpret what Moses had written. And particularly Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. I imagine most of you were meditating on this verse this morning. Deuteronomy 24, 1. This is what it says. It says, now when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house and she departs out of his house. And then it goes on to explain from there. But the key phrases of this particular passage that we want to take notice of, because this is what led to the debate, is two phrases. In the second line there, it says, if then she finds no favor in his eyes. And the next one, because he has found some indecency in her. And the debate now comes down to what does it mean to find no favor in his eyes? And what does this phrase indecency refer to? Now, the strict understanding of those two phrases is that it referred to the sin of adultery. Indecency, adultery, that's what it refers to. And that's where a husband in that case could issue a certificate of divorce. And that was the view that was held by that fellow Rabbi Shammai. And again, his conclusion then is that the only justifiable cause for divorce was marital unfaithfulness. Now, the followers of Hillel, on the other hand, they determined that that phrase, some indecency in her, referred to anything that annoyed or displeased the husband. All right, that's a much more liberal understanding of it. Now, I love my wife. But there are times there are things that annoy me or displease me. Come do the dishes. I just sat down. I just sat down. 
But that was the view of Hillel. Anything that annoyed or displeased the husband. And so he understood indecency to mean any sort of indiscretion. He wrote on it. He even included the point of burning of the breakfast as a valid grounds for a divorce. William Barclay, he's a contemporary commentator. I don't think he's alive anymore, but uh, he's in our era uh, around here. He wrote this. He said, according to Hillel, indecency could mean spoiling a dish of food, like burning it, if the woman talked to a strange man, or if she was a brawling woman. Now, he defined a brawling woman as a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. All right? (laughs) I get it. Um, There was another popular rabbi of the day. His name was Rabbi Akiba. He went so far as to say, and this is awful, but he said that indecency meant that if a man found a woman who was fairer in his eyes than his wife was, then he had grounds to divorce her based on Deuteronomy chapter 24. So some took very, very extremely liberal views. Essentially, any reason you want to divorce your wife, you could do so. Now, Jesus had actually already addressed this matter. About two and a half years ago, when Jesus, not not from today, from back then, two and a half years earlier, when Jesus presented the Sermon on the Mount, he addressed the issue in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, he said this, It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now that is certainly the more traditional and conservative view on the issue, isn't it? And so if you have to put Jesus on one side of this spectrum, you're going to put him with Shammai on this particular spectrum. And it's probable that the Pharisees who saw Jesus as liberal. So remember the woman caught in adultery, how Jesus responds to her? He cares for her. He ministers to her. No one's here to condemn you. Neither do I condemn you any longer. They saw Jesus as being more of a liberal individual. And so it seems as if, I wonder, I should say, as if they think Jesus previously spoke in agreement with Shammai, but he's become this more liberal uh, rabbi, and so he's going to contradict himself, and we got him. Again, they think that they're going to be able to get Jesus. Jesus is not that dumb, all right? He's not dumb at all. Uh, he's like, you're not going to get me. And so notice what Jesus does. He says, well, what did Moses command you? I love this because Jesus doesn't say, well, in my opinion, and he could have. He's the Lord of all the earth. But he models for us. I don't care about your opinion. He models for us. Let's go back to the source of truth. And so he goes back to the word of God. And he says, well, what did Moses command you? He doesn't say, well, you know, that's a real tough one. Hmm. Let me think about that. He goes back to the word of God. And so that he can address their understanding of the word of God. He says, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Notice the difference. They come to him and they say, uh, he says, what did Moses command you? And he said, well, Moses allowed us. All right, and so they're already on sort of a different plane here in their conversation with one another. Notice their question was, according to Matthew, was about this idea of can we divorce our wife for any cause? 
So it's about that particular issue. They don't bring that up here. And they simply say, well, Moses said we could. Moses said we can get a divorce. And Jesus is going to go from there to a new place altogether, a better place. And he says, yeah, he said you could because of the hardness of your hearts. But what did God desire is where he takes them. What's the purpose of marriage is where he takes them. So you notice there in 10.5, he says this. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, in ancient Jewish practice, 4,000 years ago, now that I've got you excited, hold on one second. 4,000 years ago, in ancient Jewish practice, that's during the time of Moses-ish, approximately, maybe it's 3,500, something like that. A woman in the Jewish society had no legal rights of her own, zero legal rights of her own. And so she was at the complete disposal of the male head of her family. Now, when she was younger, that would be her father. If the father passes and she's still younger, it would become her older uh, brother, oldest brother. They're the one in charge of her. When she got married, her husband became in charge of her. The woman had no legal rights uh, of her own. And so the practice began to develop that a man could divorce his wife on any grounds, and they were, on any grounds at all, while a woman was almost completely without recourse if wronged by her husband. The best that a woman could do is go to her husband, who she wants to divorce, and ask him if he would be so kind as to divorce her. You see, no rights uh, at all here. And because of the hardness of men's hearts, Divorce, not just male in that sense, but because of the hardness of men's hearts, divorce was already occurring. And so Moses' instructions were not so much about being permissive, but about being concessive. And what I mean by that, a concession to something they were already doing and putting some parameters around it. Parameters around it to protect marriage and to protect the women that were being abused essentially by this system here. So divorce is already happening on such a scale that something has to be put in place to regulate it. And again, to particularly pr uh, protect the wife in the situation. And so Moses puts some rules in place because of the hardness of man's heart that uh, was manifesting itself. Now, the scripture is very clear about divorce in this regard. The scripture tells us very clearly God's attitude toward it. The prophet Malachi, he declared this, for I hate divorce, declares the Lord. I hate it. He despises it. For I hate divorce, declares the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The Lord hates divorce. Somewhere in the 1960s in the United States of America, uh, the idea of a no-fault divorce was introduced. Prior to that time, you had to go essentially convince a judge that a divorce was the thing that needed to happen. And then it was introduced into our society. society you know, you just tell the judge, we want to get a divorce, and that's it. And divorce rates skyrocketed in the United States of America at that particular point in time. Now, let me say this. Even though the Bible does say God hates divorce, I do not think, and I think the Bible teaches, which I'm going to try and show you, this doesn't mean that there may never be a justifiable reason for divorce. But it certainly addresses the assertions that a divorce would be appropriate for any cause, like burning the morning breakfast. It certainly addresses that. If God hates divorce, 
I cannot see him saying, look, if she can't cook, I mean, we understand, you know. <laughs> Moses permitted a man to divorce his wife, as we said, provided he gave her a written certificate of divorce. But we all need to know that was never God's ideal. It was permitted, again, as Jesus says, because of the hardness of man's heart, but it was never God's ideal. And it is never God's ideal. Now, Jesus is going to go on. He's going to continue to instruct these Pharisees as to what God's ideal really is. Notice what he says. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And so the Pharisees, they come to Jesus with a question about what God actually allows. Jesus turns it around, and he has them consider what God actually desires. And there's a big difference between the two, isn't there? You see, I think the difference is very similar to how close can I get to the line without actually sinning? If you're asking that question, you've missed the point of what it means to be in a relationship with God. I think it was Augustine who said, love God and do whatever you want. Love God and do whatever you want. And some people think, oh, what? If you love God, then you can do whatever you want, like sin? Well, see, if you love the Lord, you're not going to want to sin. Love God and do whatever you want. And some people ask the question, how close can I get to sin without actually crossing over and getting in trouble? But the better question is, what does God desire for me? These Pharisees were asking the question, what does God allow regarding divorce? What they should have been asking is, what does God want for my marriage? That's a very, very different question. We do the same thing so often in our walks with the Lord. We need to be careful. And so Jesus, rather than attacking the Pharisees' position on divorce, he doesn't say, look, I know what Hillel says, I know what Shammai says, or Aqaba says, or anybody else says. Jesus doesn't really deal with the divorce issue, but he deals with the marriage issue. He broadens their understanding of marriage. He says, look, from the beginning, God made them male and female. From the beginning. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 5, that verse is from. Again, he doesn't say, well, look, in my opinion, it's really about, he goes back to the word of God. He goes on from there and he says, male and female, God created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. He directs their thinking from their own view, their own interpretation of the law of Moses regarding ending a marriage back to God's original intent for marriage. And again, in doing so, he transitions them from a talk about divorce to a talk about marriage. For in Jesus' estimation, the problem was not that these Pharisees didn't understand the law about divorce. The problem was they didn't understand God's heart for marriage. And I think many of us don't as well. And it's so interesting that Jesus takes them all the way back to the beginning, the book of Genesis. Because so often when people want to know what God has to, or maybe they don't want to know, but when there's an issue that has to be dealt with, has to be addressed, maybe it's outside of sort of traditional culture or whatever, when a person goes back to the word of God or they go back to a time before, the response often will be, well, we live in different times now. Or it might be, well, look, it's time for us to develop a more modern approach to these particular issues. Jesus thought it was appropriate to go back 4,000 years, in our case, 6,000 years, to answer the question. And he brings them all the way back to the book of Genesis to address this. Because for Jesus, the key concept in his understanding of marriage is God's desire for oneness 
in marriage. And so look at how he continues in verse 7. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but they are one flesh. From the beginning, God's intent for marriage was that one man and one woman would be joined together and become one flesh. They, too, should become one. No longer would they be two individuals sort of cohabitating, going their own direction, doing their own thing, but now they would be one flesh living and working in unison and in harmony with one another. Working in unison and harmony with one another physically, one flesh, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, in every way, a oneness of being. Now, divorce rips that oneness apart. And maybe you've seen the example, the picture, where you take two pieces of construction paper, you glue them together, you let it get nice and solid and connected with one another here, and then you, begin, you try to separate those two. And you can't cleanly separate those two. Both pages are forever damaged if you try to separate those pages that have been glued together. So too, the parties of divorce. And I'll tell you this, it goes beyond the two parties. Divorce impacts children. It impacts in-laws. It impacts friends. We've even seen it scar the church. We've even seen it scar the church. Now again, there may be a reason why a divorce may indeed be the better option. But it's never God's ideal. And Jesus here, by bringing the issue back to God's original intent, he's directing the Pharisees to consider not just what is allowed, but what is desired. And he uses here, it's a very interesting word that is chosen in verse 9, where it says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's an interesting, it's one word in the Greek language, and it's the word that is used to describe the yoke the device that is uh, designed to bind two animals together as they go about to accomplish their particular task. We're not an agricultural society. You're like, what are you talking about? Let's put a, let's, we're going to show you a little picture here, I hope. That's a yoke. Okay, you've seen it? You heard about it? It's hanging at Longhorn Steakhouse, and you're like, what's that doing up there? And I'm not really sure what that is. The kids hang on it and swing or, or something. That's a yoke there. And the two bigger ewes that you have there, they go around the animal's neck, the little ring you have in the middle that is tied to a rope, which the person in the back would control. Here's sort of a picture of it. And what the yoke will do is it'll, it'll bind these two animals together so that they can work with one another to accomplish whatever it is that they need to accomplish here. They, too, become one because they've been joined together. And too many marriages fail or... They continue in misery, and you probably know people, maybe you say, I'm really that person. We can't get divorced, so we'll just stay together in misery with one another. Too many marriages fail or continue in misery because they two that have become one aren't operating as one. And so they continue to be bound in marriage, but they continue to operate as single units. And as they continue to operate as single units, they're like those pages that are glued together that are increasingly being pulled apart one from another until they tear. And so then many conclude, both in the church, outside of the church, 
that the best option then is, you know what, just rip the pages apart. We'll deal with the aftermath afterwards. There's counseling. We'll figure it out afterwards here. Just rip them apart. But the solution is not to rip the two apart, but for the two to truly come together in the one flesh relationship that is both a fact that they are married, but also becomes their continued goal. Because you know it, life is busy. And married couples can grow apart from one another. And increasingly what we have seen in our society, it's, it's somewhat rare, it's somewhat new to our society. It used to be if you got past three years in marriage, because the first three years you're like, you're driving me nuts, I thought you were gonna be great, I can't stand you, or whatever, and people would get divorced. It used to be if you got past those first three years of marriage, you were gonna make it. But there's this new trend that has developed in our society where couples now 25 years into marriage are saying, I am not living the rest of my days like this. And they pursue divorce at that particular point in time. God's desire, though two, they become one because they have been joined together. That's what we're striving for is a continued oneness, one with the other. He says what God has joined together, man is not to separate. So that's the yoke analogy. To use a different analogy, divorce is akin to physical amputation. And there may be times in the most extreme of circumstances where amputation of a part of the body may be necessary and it may be the right thing to do. But I'll tell you, any patient that is facing possibly having a foot amputated, a leg amputated, or something like that, they're going to tell you, let's do everything else first so that we don't have to go down that particular path. Now, again, there may be a time where amputation is necessary, but let's make sure we've tried every other option first. And so are there justifiable reasons for divorce? For the person that is seeking to know the Lord, and yet divorce has to occur? I believe there is. Because first off, that word indecency in Deuteronomy 24 must mean something, right? Even though one guy says it means burning the toast and another guy says it only means this, it has to mean something. And so there is a justifiable reason. And I, with Jesus, because he addresses it later, I take the view that indecency in that verse is referring to marital unfaithfulness. And I say with Jesus because, as we saw earlier, he addressed the issue. Matthew 5.31, he says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. And so one biblical reason for a divorce is when one of the parties in the relationship has committed adultery and they have violated their covenant that they had before God with their spouse. Now, this is not to say that divorce is mandated in such circumstances. And so just because one party was unfaithful to the other, that doesn't mean divorce has to occur in those particular incident, incidents, but it is permissible in such circumstances because it is such a violation of the one flesh relationship that many are not able to find healing from that. And it becomes the only answer in that situation. And so then one biblically permissible reason for divorce is if a party has violated their covenant to be faithful to their husband or to their wife. A second biblically permissible reason for divorce is found in the writings of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's discussing the marriage, the topic of marriage, 
And beginning in verse 12 of that chapter, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, you want to be careful with that. He's not saying, look, Jesus would say something different, but I'm going to tell you. What he's saying is Jesus never taught on this topic. And so he's going to teach on this topic as an apostle. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. Now, there's a context. That's verse 12. The context is that Paul had just been speaking about the importance of believers being equally yoked together. And so you recall that picture I showed a moment ago of the two bulls or cows, whatever they were, those two big animals that had the yoke around them. If you took that same picture and you replaced one of them with like a goat, that's not going to work. The goat's not the same height. It's not the same strength. Uh, they're not going to be moving in the same, at the same pace and things like that. Unequally yoked, it's not going to work. And Paul's been talking about this idea of being unequally yoked. And then what Paul does, and he does this so well, Paul anticipates uh, sort of counter-arguments or questions that his readers are going to perhaps bring up. And so Paul seems to anticipate, well, what if somebody says, well, look, me and my husband, me and my wife, we are unequally yoked. I became a believer recently. She's an unbeliever here. We're not the same. So I'm going to divorce her and I'm going to go and marry a Christian, a nice person from the church or whatever it may be. Paul will say, no, I understand where you're coming from. I, I appreciate you trying to obey what I just said about being equally yoked together. But in that circumstance, if a new believer is married to an unbeliever, stay in the relationship as long as they'll have you. Now, it's possible that unbeliever will say, yeah, I don't like the new you. You know, you're annoying, you're obnoxious, all you do is talk about Jesus, all you do is pray for me, you know, these kinds of things. And they may want to leave you, that's possible, and he says, look, if that's the case here, then let them go, they can go. You're not bound. I don't like the word, uh, the way it's translated in our English language. He says, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. I don't like to use the word enslaved to describe marriage. Uh, it doesn't quite seem appropriate here, but Paul's point is, you're not bound in that relationship, by that agreement, by that contract, by that particular covenant. You're released from the marriage covenant, he says there. And so then, you have the incident of uh, adultery, marital unfaithfulness. You have the incidents here, or the incident here, of abandonment. A person leaves uh, their husband or, or their wife. But again, just like with the uh, adultery situation, it's permissible, divorce is, but it's not something that's required. It's not even something that's necessarily encouraged to go down that path. What's encouraged is confession of sin, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation, restoration. Those are the things that are encouraged. Because again, divorce, like amputation, it should only be viewed as a last resort. Those are the two biblical grounds provided for us in Scripture. Now, are there, other, are there ever any other grounds for divorce beyond those two instances? I believe there is. Working in pastoral ministry, I believe there is. But those are the only two specifically provided for us in the scripture. 
which means progressing forward in any discussion in any way, we want to do so very carefully and very prayerfully in those instances. For instance, how do we respond to a situation where one party in the relationship is being physically or psychologically abused by the second party? And who defines psychological abuse? At the very, very least, there may be a cause there for separation in those instances for the safety of the party, uh, the offended party, or maybe of the children. Another instance, what if one party has unrepentantly given themselves over to pornography? Would that be equivalent to the sexual morality that Jesus spoke of there in the Sermon on the Mount? What about if there are mismanaging of the family's finances through a gambling addiction or something like that? You see, these, these are more complicated issues that at the very least we want to prayerfully and carefully consider those particular things. But my point is this, as it gets complicated, when we move beyond the biblical grounds that are clearly provided for us, that's my point, it gets complicated. At the same time, I hope I'm making this other point, is we are nowhere near the realm of the lax understanding that some folks in Jesus's day were holding, like she's not pretty enough anymore, or she burnt the toast, or she's loud and obnoxious, and I can't stand her, or vice versa. Decisions in matters like the ones I mentioned above, they require prayer. They require counsel with godly individuals. And always be careful. When we seek counsel from others, don't shop around for counsel. Don't go and go and go. Five people say, you know, be careful with that. And then you find the one that hits what you were hoping they would say. And I, I went and I got some counsel. Be careful of shopping around. Requires prayer, counsel with godly individuals, and your spiritual leaders. Talk to those people. Discuss those matters before jumping into them. Don't jump into them lightly. Now, as you move on, look at verse 10. The disciples are troubled with what Jesus has just said. It seems like it almost surprises them. And so when they get into the house, it says they ask Jesus about this matter. Notice Jesus' blunt reply. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, one of the things about that that's so interesting, you remember with the talk when Moses uh, wrote what he wrote, Hardness of Men's Hearts and so on, there was no mention of a woman issuing a divorce to her husband because the female had no rights in that particular day, 2,000 years, 1,500 years or so before Jesus. Jesus here, he, and in Jesus' day, she didn't have the rights either. And yet Jesus speaks to her being able to give him an issuance of divorce here. He elevates the woman in this conversation here whereas before she had no rights whatsoever. Now, we don't have this in Mark, but in this account, Matthew, he tells us that the disciples ask about it, Jesus responds, and then the disciples respond to him, and they say, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. What does that say about the disciples' marriages? That they're thinking, if there's no way out, then I shouldn't get married at all. It seems troubling to me. That's not Jesus' conclusion. So Jesus' conclusion is, look, you're better off just not marrying at all because you're going to be miserable when you're there. That's not Jesus' conclusion. We read in the book of Proverbs that it says this, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It says, essentially, you reverse that, he who finds a husband. Amen, Robin? Amen. <laughs> finds a good thing 
and obtains favor from the Lord. And so while their conclusion was to not marry at all, they'd be better off not marrying at all, the positive of that is they're beginning to see the seriousness of the marriage bond. One would hope their conclusion is, man, I'm going to pursue oneness like God desires and be so blessed in that particular relationship. But they're beginning to see the seriousness of the marriage bond and how it should not be dissolved for just any old reason. That statement of Jesus there, that's really the logical conclusion of his initial premise that he brought up in the beginning, which is, uh, if, if true, it is true that marriage is a God-created bond between a man and a woman, then the conclusion is if someone breaks that bond without proper cause and goes on to be remarried, then what they're doing is committing adultery there. Marriage is a binding promise made before friends, made before family, but ultimately made before the Lord himself. And as a follower of Christ, we need to come to grips with the facts that marriage is a promise made to God, our spouse, and the world, and it's a binding promise, one which is not to be lightly broken at our own discretion. What do people say? Well, we just don't love each other anymore. That is not a valid reason for divorce. Some will say, well, you look, we should have never gotten married in the first place. We were young. We rushed into it. It was a mistake. That is not a valid reason for divorce. Some will say, I'm unhappy in my marriage, my present marriage. According to the scriptures, that's not a valid reason. So let me say four things this morning as we leave here. We conclude. Number one, first, I know that there are some here that have gone through the painful process of divorce. What I want you to know is this, that you're not some second-class Christian because you have. And even if you have undergone and were even maybe the driving force behind an unbiblical divorce, you need to know that there is forgiveness and there is cleansing for those that seek it. And that the magnitude of your sin in that area is no different from other folks in some other area of sin. And so if in repentance you return to the Lord and you seek his face, the scripture promises he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive and he will cleanse. And so hear me. If that describes you and you're repentant, go to the Lord and there's cleansing. But hear me also in this. Seeking God's face in repentance in that particular way, that's very different from the person who says, look, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, and then I'll ask him for forgiveness. Because that's sort of an attitude of the heart. That comes from a place of rebellion. And rebellious hearts always need to be broken. And the process is very, very painful. And so if you're thinking here, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and then I'll get, figure it out with God later, please be, take heed and be warned. That rebellion is painful. Now, the second group I want to address as we close here, I suspect there are some here this morning, and you entered into service this morning actively and seriously thinking about divorcing your spouse, maybe even during this past week. And to you, may I say, allow God's word to speak to you this morning. If you have biblical grounds for divorce, 
as are provided in Scripture, I'll remind you of this, that divorce is, in those circumstances, is permitted, but it's not commanded by God in his word. If you do not have biblical grounds for divorce, then seek the Lord for his wisdom, seek the Lord for his strength in his word and in prayer and in counsel uh, through the counsel of godly friends and leaders. The third group are those of us in this room that aren't yet married. I think the application for you that are not yet married in your life is to carefully consider soberly the bond that you will be entering into should you ever get married and find yourself in that particular circumstance. And then finally, fourth and finally, those of us here that are married, and perhaps not thinking about divorce, we're married. Let me ask you this question. Are you pursuing God's ideal for your marriage? His ideal that you two would not just coexist, but that you would actually be yoked together as one in purpose and in plan. Because the Lord desires great things for every one of our marriages. And so if you're married here this morning, can I exhort you as I'm exhorting myself, refocus your heart and your mind to pursue the oneness in your marriage that God designed for your marriage to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.